Well, good morning, Cedar Lake campus. Great to see you all there here today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brad Lagos. I'm the executive pastor here at Bethel Church. Been on the staff team for almost 17 years, believe it or not, and uh, have been able to watch the journey of this particular location uh, through many years and most recent history under the campus pastor leadership of Jared Bryant. I just want to acknowledge him and say what a blessing you are to have Pastor Jared as your campus pastor here. <laughs> He has done really a uh, tremendous job. I think we're coming up on the one-year anniversary when we officially kind of like locked you in after months of like interim, I'm not sure of the Lord's leading, but thankfully you all convinced him that being here was worth it. So thank you for that. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, Pastor Jared leading this congregation, just delighted to see the story of God's continued growth here. You all are certainly a part of that. I usually, of course, uh, kind of make my home base at the Crown Point location, uh, but found myself on the preaching rotation to show up here at Cedar Lake uh, this weekend, and of course asked Pastor Jared, you know, what would be a good uh, word for me to bring to all of you? And uh, there was a sermon that I delivered at the Crown Point campus back, and I think it was February, that seemed to resonate. And and Jared said, well, how about you kind of pull that one out and uh, share it here with the, with the Cedar Lake team? And uh, seems providential, especially because of the uh, events of this past week that we've acknowledged a few times in the service now with this just terrible, horrific uh, shooting in, in Texas. And so if you happen to be at Crown Point back in February and heard this message, my apologies. I've, I've retooled tooled it a little bit, but uh, I'm happy to share it with you now because, again, it is freshly relevant because it is a message really on the subject of suffering. And uh, as we have seen the events unfold this past week, we have certainly seen a, a ton of questions being asked in the news media, in the public arena, the social discourse. The questions that I've most frequently seen is uh, questions about what can we do to stop this from ever happening again? How can we maneuver or create a society that things like this just don't happen? And so there's conversations about uh, gun control and about, you know, uh, school security procedures and law enforcement responses and mental health and all society looking for answers. How, how do we stop these kind of things from happening? What I don't see being asked, though, is perhaps a more important question and a question of why do these things happen? Why, under God's sovereignty, does he create a world wherein gun violence and horrific acts of, uh, of murder like this that killed 19 very young children, how does God, why does God create a world where these kind of things happen? And what is a, a biblical and a theological answer to that fundamental question of why? Why do we live in a world like this? And there's really two different aspects to that question. The first one is, why, God, do you have a world where we have, have such evil things happening, such wicked things happening? Why, why God, do you not restrain or stop people from doing such terrible, horrendous things? And then the other kind of side of that same question is, why, why God, do you have, is there so much suffering? Sometimes that suffering is induced by volitional acts of others, but sometimes it just happens through natural disasters or uh, pandemics or disease, cancer. God, why do, you, why do you have a world where there seems to be just so much pervasive suffering, especially for your faithful people? Now, answering both kind of sides of that question is, is a, a complicated one, and I'm not going to have time to do, do both. So uh, I don't have time really to deal with the question of, of evil and, and why and how would God allow in this world such heinous acts of violence to, to, to happen. That, answering that question requires a, a set of responses. Instead, I want to answer more specifically the question, God, why is there so much suffering in this world? And this act, this latest act in, in Texas, while we're shocked by the immediate event itself, there is going to be a, a long, deep chasm of suffering that comes from this that will endure for many people for the rest of their lives. As families are, are without a loved one, as children relive for the rest of their life the trauma of this event. All that suffering that will come from the wake of this one tragic moment 
God, why, why do you have a world where that takes place? Now, in addressing this, I do kind of want to maybe look back on one category of suffering that all of us are intimately familiar with, especially in our, our nation, particularly two years of a global pandemic. And I want to kind of address this question somewhat in, in light of that. Why would you have God, uh, something so disruptive to our lives, create so much suffering such as that? But in, but in doing that, I also hope to give some answers to the context really behind all human suffering. And to help us dig into this, let's first turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to open your Bibles to that. I'm not going to have all these passages up on the screen. Follow along in Hebrews chapter 11 here. When I ask you to turn to Hebrews 11, that might not be the first chapter that comes to your mind when we think about passages that address human suffering. This is traditionally called the Hall of Faith chapter and is usually thought of a very uplifting chapter full of great heroes of the Bible. In this chapter, we find a list of very prominent Old Testament saints. Sixteen of them are, are, are listed by name, and the passage here recounts their experiences as the people of God, and in doing so, it carries a very repetitive structure. Most mentions of the particular names are preceded by the phrase, by faith. So by faith, Abel. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. And after mentioning the name, then the author goes on to recount either a description of how that person acted on their faith or an example of how that person received just an incredible uh, work, uh, blessing from the Lord. So, for example, let's look at verse 7 in chapter 11. By faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Verse 23, move down there. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. And now look at verse 29 and following. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then it goes on, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So we see her a wonderful, encouraging pattern. This is an incredible group of people who live by faith. They demonstrated wonderful faith, and they all received incredible miracles and blessings from the Lord. By faith, they were rescued and delivered and healed and protected and blessed. Oftentimes, in miraculous ways, God parted the seas for his faithful people. He restored barren women so that they could conceive and have children. He defeated the enemies of his faithful people. He provided them with security and prosperity. All this comes to a climax in verse 35 when it says, women received back their dead by resurrection. So the picture here is that mothers had their dead children raised back to life. What an incredible miracle of, for God's people of faith. But notice what follows, second part of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth." There's a shift here. There's a very prominent shift. Suddenly the text changes, and now instead of pictures of great blessing and prominence and deliverance, we see accounts of suffering and hardship and misery and persecution. In some instances, the suffering is too graphic, too horrible to really think about. Some of these people were sawn in two. They were cut into two parts while yet alive. They were stoned, made homeless, flogged and imprisoned, caused to suffer immensely. And who, and who are these people? Prior to verse 35, the focus is, is clearly on God's people of faith who received great blessings and miracles and, and acts of deliverance. And that's what you would expect for God's people. But now here's another group of people who are suffering in horrible, unimaginable ways. And who are they? 
I mean, you, you might be tempted to think these are wicked people, people who deserve this treatment, but there, there's no indication of a change like that in the text. It just flows in verse 35 from mentioning women who had their children resurrected from the dead to people who endured some of the most cruel and difficult hardships imaginable. There's no break in this passage. There's no separation between these two groups of people. There's no break in this text. And so these people who received incredible miracles and blessings from the Lord and these people who received incredible hardships, they're all people of faith. There's no break here. They're all the same people of faith. And so by faith, the people of God receive blessings of deliverance. By faith, they are healed. By faith, they are rescued. By faith, miracles. By faith, protection. By faith, joy. By faith, torture. By faith, persecution. By faith, poverty and homelessness. By faith, imprisonment. By faith, coronavirus. By faith, acts of violence, by faith cancer, by faith tornadoes and tsunamis, by faith even death itself, which tells us one very important thing about how God relates to his people of faith. Sometimes God sees fit to give his people of faith incredible acts of blessing and deliverance and success and healing and rescue, and sometimes he does not do it. Sometimes he lifts his faithful people up out of their misery and he lifts them and rescues them from enduring great pain and sometimes he does not do it. Why? Why? Why, God? Why? Why sometimes do you protect your faithful people from suffering and why sometimes do you not do it? Why is one faithful believer healed from their illness while another Barks on a long, heartbreaking decline. Why does God bless one believing couple with a household full of children? Another couple struggles their entire life with infertility. Why does one 40-year-old man catch the coronavirus and it barely has an impact on his health? And another 40-year-old man, a father of three elementary age kids, catches the same virus and dies. And now you have children without their dad and a wife without a husband all because of the seemingly random impact of a tiny virus particle? Why do some families send their kids off to school? And there's, there's uh, you know, this week, a number of families whose children are not returning. Well, thankfully for most of us, we send our kids to school and they come home every day. Why, God, do you sometimes have your righteous people suffer? Why do you not rescue everyone from their suffering? The goal of my message today will attempt to answer these kinds of questions, and particularly this central question, why, God, do you have your faithful people suffer? And in answering this question, I'll try to provide three reasons, three reasons why God has his faithful people suffer. But first, I have to give two important principles about suffering. So first, two broad principles about suffering, and then three reasons why God has his faithful people suffer. So two important principles. The first is this. Suffering is often the result of sinful or unwise choices, particularly our own. See, so much of the suffering in this world, it is deserved. It is brought upon us by poor and unwise and unrighteous decisions that we make. So if you choose to lead a lifetime addicted to cigarettes, don't be surprised if you come down with, with lung cancer or liver cancer. If you fail to invest in your children, disciple them as they ought. Don't be surprised if one of them goes wayward and disappoints you later in life. If you decide to text while driving a car, it shouldn't surprise you if you get in an accident that injures you or perhaps even takes your own life. See, suffering is often the result of sinful or unwise choices that we make. We see this every day, and it is clearly true. The Bible affirms this fact. Proverbs says it this way in chapter 5, verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Or Psalm 7, similarly, the wicked man makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And so you all know, know the phrase, probably, choose to sin, you choose to suffer. 
when we don't do what's right or we don't do what's wise or smart, suffering often comes our way, which means that in some large measure, the suffering that we face is in some ways self-inflicted. But not all suffering falls in that category, not by a long shot. Like when people's homes are wiped out by a tornado, that's not because of a sinful or unwise choice. When a person is born with a genetic disease, that's not because of any particular thing that they have brought upon themselves. Sometimes the suffering comes because of sinful or wicked things that other people have done, like someone has a loved one killed through an act of violence. See, suffering often befalls people for reasons that are not self-inflicted. Why, God, would you allow that? We'll get to that question in a moment. But much of the suffering that we face in many ways is, to some measure, self-inflicted. We know that suffering is often a result of our own unwise or sinful choices. That's one important leading principle. But another one is this, that God is in control of all human suffering. The Bible teaches that God is in complete and total control of all things. This is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. So some categories in which God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the individual uh, decision-making and desires. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is also sovereign over nations and geopolitical forces. Job 12, 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. God is sovereign over nature and all that happens in the natural realm. We see it in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And God is absolutely sovereign over really everything that happens in the face of this earth. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This passage is absolute in its language. God works all things according to his will. All things. Which means that God is totally sovereign over everything, including all matters of human suffering. So that when the Lord sees his people suffering and in misery, he's not up there wringing his hands saying, oh, I really wish I could do something. I wish I could come in and I wish I could help and bring them out of that. Listen, God, God is not impotent. He's not weak or powerless in his ability to act. He's not observing your suffering, frustrated by the circumstance. He can, without a doubt, at any moment, take it away. At any moment, with a mere thought, God could eliminate any element of human suffering. Any suffering in your life could vanish in a moment by a, mere, by a miracle of God. So the coronavirus could, by God's power, two years ago, just been eradicated, gone from the space of this earth, if God so chose. Or the, the gun could jam, by God's miracle, preventing a terrible tragedy, if God so chose. But the miracle does not always come. And sometimes God has his faithful people endure suffering. Why? And how then could God not be considered cruel? Because he has the ability to rescue his people from their suffering. He has the power to immediately end all suffering, yet he does not do it. So that's the question I want to dig into more fully now. Let's consider three reasons why God has his faithful people suffer. Three reasons for Christian suffering. And to begin, let's look at the example of Paul and his own personal reflection on his sufferings that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 24, when he's, Paul, reflecting just on his own life experience of hardship, says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's suffering. Paul knew suffering in a very real, intimate, personal way, yet he eventually came to a point when he could say something pretty amazing, pretty incredible about his sufferings. Reflecting on his sufferings in Romans chapter 5, he says this, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul gets to the point that he can say we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, these are some shocking words, especially when we consider the very hard suffering that Paul endured throughout his life. Rejoice here does not mean that Paul delighted in his sufferings, and he enjoyed them. He's not a masochist. 
Rather, it means that Paul had a deep-seated kind of peace and contentment, even thankfulness for his sufferings. He accepted them, and he appreciated his sufferings in some ways. But how could Paul ever say that? How could he ever get to that point? If you and I face these kind of sufferings that Paul faced, just being mistreated and persecuted and hunted and put in prison and beaten, we wouldn't rejoice. I'm confident myself, many of us would despair. You know, we tend to despair when our internet doesn't work right. Or supply chain issues mean we don't get packages on our doorstep within 12 hours. We despair when we look at gas prices at $5 a gallon. Or when we're forced to wear masks in public. Listen, Paul was hunted, unjustly imprisoned, he faced starvation and homelessness, deep, massive hardship, yet he came to a point that he was able to say he rejoices in his suffering. And he gives the reason for that in Romans chapter 5. Notice the progression of the text here. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So he says that suffering produces endurance, which is essentially the growing ability to persevere through our hardships. It means that suffering produces a great capacity to stick with it and make it through a difficult season. And, and the result of that endurance then is character, and character essentially refers to the righteousness of a person. It is the degree to which a person is Christ-like in their lives. So Paul is saying that the suffering produces Christ-likeness in our lives, and then that Christ-likeness produces hope. Hope in the goodness of God and his ability to bring a person through any painful trial they might face. So we see that suffering produces something positive here, doesn't it? Paul's point is that the experience of suffering produces Christ-like character and faith and hope in our lives. And here and then is the first important reason of why God has his faithful people suffer. Why does God have his faithful people suffer? It is for their own sake that he does it. It is for the sake of his people that he has them endure suffering so that they would grow, so that they would mature, so that through suffering we would experience an increase of character and Christ-likeness. You see, suffering is often this crucible in which character is formed. Just as a chunk of metal in order to become useful or something beautiful, it has to be changed by being melted and put through a crucible of fire. So too is it with our sanctification. Ask any believer who's been through a very hard and difficult trial, and hopefully they have a story to tell about how God used that difficult trial to grow them spiritually and to conform them more into the image of Christ. And in that result, they rejoice. Let me tell you how that has happened some. One example in just my own life. I can't say I've had a life of terribly hard suffering. I've had some hardship, but by no means am I an immense expert on human suffering, but I praise God for that. But about 14 years ago, my wife Jessica and I had one of the most difficult trials in our now 17, almost 18 years of marriage. By God's grace, we became pregnant. We were expecting our second child, but at our first ultrasound, we received some shocking news. Apparently, Jessica had what was called a complete placenta previa, which is a condition where the placenta is positioned below the baby instead of around it and above it. And this carries with it difficult risks and complications. Uh, the condition requires a mandatory C-section. The doctors informed us that upon delivery, it is very possible the placenta would have a difficult time detaching from the uterus, and it could lead to life-threatening hemorrhaging for Jessica. So for months, we waited and we prayed, anticipating what this birth would bring for us. There were no promises that things were going to turn out okay. In fact, there were some very real concerns that they would not. And the, the, in that waiting period, our character was forged in all sorts of ways. As we were forced to trust in God more and have faith in His goodness, we were driven to our knees more to seek Him in prayer. And we grew as a couple as we faced this trial together. And finally, that day came. We entered into that delivery room with real anxiety, but also a stronger faith in God's goodness, believing that no matter what we faced on the other side, He would be sufficient. By God's grace, the C-section went as planned, and there were no serious complications for Jessica, uh, but not so for our little baby girl, Liana. Due to the high risk, the doctors decided to perform the C-section early, apparently too early for little Leah. 
Her lungs were underdeveloped. She couldn't breathe on her own. And she spent two weeks in the NICU. Here's a picture of her uh, there. Now, some of you face a trial like this. And if you have, I have a very special uh, compassion for you. It's a very difficult thing to suddenly be thrown a curveball and give birth to a child who is not at all healthy. And we lived at the University of Chicago Hospital for two weeks in the Ronald McDonald House, waiting, yearning for the day we could take our little baby girl, Leah, home. And by God's miraculous grace, that day arrived, and she made it through this. She's a healthy teenager today with lots of life and a ton of sass, I'll assure you of that. <laughs> but this whole experience, it resulted in God doing some work in our character. And the whole, certainly in the process leading up to the birth, and then these two weeks of just unexpected heartache after, he taught us about his sufficiency and our need to wait on him. He taught us about lessons, various lessons about life and a new perspective on things. In fact, one day I was sitting there in the NICU surrounded by all these uh, children in a similar condition, sitting by my daughter's bedside, and I, I decided to journal. And I wrote these paragraphs thinking about our experience uh, in this place. I wrote this. As I reflect on this place, I discover a modern parable for an age-old truth, that the love in this room profoundly mirrors the love that our Father has for us. He looks to us with the same compassion, the same heart, the same tender care and concern. He knows every aspect of our lives in excruciating detail. We are his little ones, and he desperately wants to see us get well. You see, when one considers the awesome and infinite power of God, there's little doubt that he sees each of us, just like I see the tiny babies in this room. In his eyes, we are just as helpless, just as weak, just as vulnerable. Truth be told, we are far more feeble than we feel and far less strong than we seem. We are all on life support. The plug could be pulled at any time. And sadly, all too often, a false sense of security keeps us from being dependent on his care. Now, that's just one example of a lesson I personally learned and reflected on through this trial. And you know what? If I could, if I could change things and go back and make it so this hardship never occurred, I, I, I wouldn't do it. Why? Because suffering produces character. And character produces growth. And growth, maturity. And a better perspective on life. So let me apply this to a situation that all of us have endured and are very familiar with. A global pandemic that lasted two years. Did God use that incredible hardship to produce growth and character and maturity in his people? Absolutely he did. I've seen this myself. I've been stretched and challenged in all sorts of ways, especially in how I lead and pastor in what is now a post-pandemic world. I've seen this as so many in our congregation here through the stresses of the pandemic lost Many things were, that they were exposed to loss that they didn't have to face with before. They op the pandemic opened up categories of growth that otherwise might not have been identified. For example, some marriages have been refined in very significant ways as couples were confined in their homes and they couldn't get away from each other. They had to learn how to graciously interact and become more Christ-like. Some people had to deal with losing things for a while that were important to them, like going to athletic events, traveling and seeing the world, just eating out at restaurants and movie theaters. Many of us had to learn that our true treasure was in Christ, not the things of this world that are so fleeting. Families, families had to find new ways to have fun together. People rediscovered the simpler things in life, like cooking and puzzles. The pandemic certainly revealed areas where people had misplaced priorities. Or maybe the job was too important, or that pastime was too important, or perhaps the family and the church life wasn't important enough. Others had to confront deep-seated insecurity, fear, and anxiety, of which, all of which they were heightened by the pandemic, which forced people into situations where they had to confront their demons and work through some things that were usually avoided. But perhaps most of all, the suffering we have seen and experienced has clearly demonstrated that the things of this world disappoint, and they're so easily and quickly taken away, that life is short and uncertain, and the comfort and the security we often feel is so easily lost, and stories of death and illness and the pain of lockdowns and isolation, as all of that happened, many Christians saw how desperately they needed hope beyond just the things that this world provides, hope that can only be found in Christ. God grows his people through suffering and adversity. That's the first reason why God has his people suffer. For the sake of his people, he does it. 
And so when that suffering comes, our, our role is we need to submit ourselves to God in it and ask him to refine us and grow us through the fires of our hardships. We must fight against our tendency to become bitter or resentful. Instead, we have to see God's perspective on our sufferings and see them as something that he can and will use to forge our character into Christ's likeness. Of course, sometimes, though, that might result in our own physical death, as has happened millions of time, a million times due to the coronavirus in the past couple of years. But for the Christian, even that is to our benefit. If your life is taken by a cruel disease, if you are in Christ, a new life awaits. And by God's design, suffering and even death itself is a necessary doorway through which we all pass in order to receive blessings that are far more abundant than any that can be had here on earth. So God's first purpose for our suffering is for our own sake, for the growth of our character and faith in this life, and eventually for the process of bringing us home to be with Jesus in the life to come. That's the first reason. The second reason, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and going back to a section where we see faithful people suffering, starting around verse 35, 30, verse 37, there's this odd little phrase that appears here. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and inflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Now what do you think that little phrase, of whom the world was not worthy, what does that mean? Apparently these people of faith who faced tremendous suffering, the, wor- the world was not worthy of them. That's a, that's a weird little phrase, what does that mean? Now if the world was not worthy of these people who suffered... It means that the world did not deserve these people. The world didn't deserve these faithful people who were suffering. But but what what does that mean? It seems that God was somehow in some way presenting these people to the world. He was, in a sense, giving them or sharing them with the world. Essentially, what this text is saying is that these suffering people were a gift to the world. Now, how are God's faithful people who suffer, how are they a gift to the world? Isn't it a blessing when you see an unbeliever, when an unbeliever sees a Christian suffer but with a hope that seems to defy understanding? Doesn't that communicate to the unbeliever that there is validity and relevance to our faith? Isn't it a blessing when so much of the world that is gripped with fear due to all the terrible things that happened, a global pandemic, or, or now even acts of violence in a school in Texas, fear grips us. But the Christians, the Christians can remain confident and full of hope and declare a message of salvation that now seems more relevant, more urgent than ever before. When unbelievers see Christians endure suffering with a spirit of faith and perseverance and joy, when they see that a Christian's faith helps them through that trial, they see that maybe there is something to this Christianity thing after all. And it is a powerful way to show to the world that, yes, our faith really does matter. That Christians are a people who suffer just like everybody else, but we suffer differently. We all face the same hard and difficult trials. We get the coronavirus like everybody else. We sometimes encounter acts of violence and things like that like everybody else. We get cancer and are in car accidents just like everybody else. But as we do so, we are a people who are not without hope. And at the end of the day, we know that there is more to this life than just the things we stand to lose through our suffering. We know we can lose our health, we can lose our home, we can lose our family, but we can never lose Jesus and his his promises to us. So that as we suffer, we strive to live for Christ and we maintain the perspective that we know that to die is gain. That there is an incredible, indescribable life to come. And as much as we love the people and the things of this world, there is something far greater that awaits us. And friends, that is hope. A hope that sustains us through our trials. And a hope that Christianity offers to a sick and dying world that is desperate to find something to hope in. And by God's design, he makes that hope real and tangible to the people of the world through the sufferings of Christians so that as we suffer, we are a gift to the world. 
that people might look at us and see hope of the gospel and in that find reason to embrace Christ by faith themselves. So the first reason that God has his faithful people suffer is for their own sake, he does it. And the second is this, for the sake of the world, he does it. For the sake of the world, he does it. Let me share one particular example of this that came, that occurred uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. Throughout the past two years, we here at Bethel lost a solid handful of church members to COVID-19. Two of the very first deaths recorded in Northwest Indiana were members of Bethel Church, Joe and Donna Hewer. And this past summer, June of 2021, almost a year ago now, uh, there was a very high-profile death in our church, in our community. On June 17th, Tom Sawyer died due to COVID-19 complications. And I believe this campus knows Tom. He attended here, and I believe his family uh, Mary continues to attend here. I don't know if I see Mary here in the room now. I'm looking, I'm scanning. And we all know here that that was truly his name, Tom Sawyer, right? He enjoyed the jokes about that his entire life. Tom was a U.S. Air Force combat veteran and a Hammond police officer for 23 years. And Tom contracted COVID while on duty. And he valiantly fought against the assault on his body for five weeks, but he eventually succumbed to the virus at the age of 53, leaving behind his wife Mary and two adult children. The funeral for Tom was held here at Bethel Church. In all my years at Bethel, I've never seen really anything like it. Tom was classified as having died in the line of duty, and because of that, he received full honors. His memorial service was attended by hundreds of law enforcement Uniformed members uh, of the police from precincts all throughout Northwest Indiana, Indiana absolutely just filled our, our church building in Crown Point. And many stories through the memorial service were told of Tom's faith in Christ and his personal commitment to live for Jesus. And by all accounts, he was a man who loved the gospel. He was a man who, who died not without hope, rather with courage and confidence because he was assured of his spiritual future. And so through that memorial service, the gospel was on full display, both through the remembrance of Tom's life, but also through the message then that was shared before hundreds of civil leaders and law enforcement, most of which surely did not have a personal faith in Jesus. And only God knows the full scope of spiritual impact that Tom's testimony has produced, but there were clearly many, many people deeply impacted by Tom's death, and a significant number greatly encouraged and challenged by his testimony. And in this, Tom's suffering, and really his whole family's suffering, it's a gift to an unbelieving world. Because although even now there is deep, lasting pain, and pray for the Sawyer family, they're coming up on the one-year anniversary of this, there is hope and confidence on display and that, friends, is a gift to an unbelieving world because it proclaims and validates the gospel in incredible ways. And I have to believe that Tom will someday meet other believers in eternity who were deeply impacted by his suffering personal testimony. People who might say to him, your death was a gift to me because it planted a seed or it helped open my eyes to my need for a savior. And in part through your testimony, I was able to find Jesus. Tom's widow, Mary, several months ago we were talking about this and she t we were texting and she texted me and these are the exact words she shared with me. She said, if our story can help others grow closer to God or plant seeds as hard as it was and still is, then it would be worth it. Can you say that about your suffering? Do you believe that your suffering could actually be a gift to an unbelieving world? And are you trying to have it be used in that way? Are you trying to be a demonstration of hope and confidence in Christ that the gospel might be advanced through your suffering? We all should. Because God has his faithful people suffer in this life in order to save people from suffering in the next. Did you get that? 
God has his faithful people suffer in this life in order to save people from suffering in the next. And isn't that just what Christ has done for us? He endured tremendous suffering to provide a gift of salvation to the unbelieving world. And we are called to imitate Christ's example. And that is why God sometimes has his faithful people suffer. For the sake of the world, God has his faithful people suffer. That's the second reason. And now the third reason is this. That God has his faithful people suffer for the sake of his own glory. For the sake of his own glory, he does it. You see, situations of suffering provide context for God's glory to be revealed in all sorts of ways. Did the COVID-19 pandemic enable God's glory to be seen in fresh, new ways? For sure, he absolutely has. As the church rose up and engaged the world with the message of the gospel, God is glorified in that. I think of our own church and how in the early months of the pandemic, we led forth so many initiatives to bring help and assistance to first responders and teachers and hospital workers. God is glorified in that. How Christians supported one another as we took turns being quarantined or ill, bringing other, each other meals and various practical demonstrations of Christian love and help. God is glorified in that. How the church has evolved to now better engage with people online through digital worship services that allow people easier access to worship and teaching. God is glorified in that. And how God's people have personally grown through adversity that this pandemic has caused as we have faced our fears and anxieties and have found better security and comfort in the gospel and in Jesus. God is glorified in that. And how stories like Tom's have demonstrated the world that though deep suffering comes, God's people will still praise him. God is glorified in that. In the Bible, perhaps one of the best examples of this is, of course, found in the book of Job. Perhaps no other book of the Bible better helps us more with a theology of suffering than the book of Job. So let me turn to some passages there. It begins with an incredible description of this man named Job. Very first verses of the book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. They were born to him seven Sons and three daughters, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So Job was among the most godly men. He was blameless, upright. He feared God. He was also the richest guy around. He had it all, incredible wealth, wonderful family, tremendous, faithful relationship with God. And despite all of his privilege, he was still very humble. He was contrite, being careful to maintain for himself utter devotion to the Lord. And, and particularly because of these reasons, Job had a huge target painted on his back by Satan himself. And here's where the book of Job gets so fascinating. It shows us a window into heaven and the conversation that Satan had with God about wanting to take Job down. So we see here in verse 7, Job and Satan meeting, I'm sorry, the Lord and Satan meeting together. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan comes to the Lord and basically says, Hey, Job is righteous simply because you made his life so comfortable. He doesn't really love you. He's faithful to you because you've made him, his life so very easy. Let me, let me make Job miserable. And then you'll see. He'll turn away from you. He'll even curse you. And God's response to this is, well, go for it, Satan. Inflict as much suffering as you want on Job, except one thing, don't kill him. And so the Lord allowed Satan to have his way with Job. And all of Job's wealth was plundered. His livestock was taken. His sons and daughters all killed when a house collapsed on them. Job himself endured tremendous physical suffering with an incredible skin disease, that painful sores all over his body. And Job's whole life crumbled before him, really, in just a matter of moments. But notice Job's response as he faced his suffering. Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job's fundamental response to his incredible suffering was worship. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And do you think that Job's response glorified God? You bet it did. And it allowed God to be glorified through Job's life in a way that would not have been possible if that suffering never came. And eventually God restored Job and gave him back everything that he had lost. In fact, the text says in chapter 40, at the very end of the book, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So Job actually ended up much better after all this suffering. But why did God have Satan temporarily destroy Job's life only to build it back to him, back for him later? The answer is to give Job the opportunity to magnify God's glory in incredible ways. Now, perhaps that seems distasteful to you. Perhaps it seems to you that God is cruel or self-serving. Perhaps he seems unloving to you. But here's another way to think about it. Suppose that your life was completely devoid of suffering. Suppose that you never once had a bad day. You never faced a tragedy in your family. You never once had to wrestle with sickness or disease. First, would you ever really feel the need for God in your life? And second, how could you then ever really know God fully? If you never had to really deal with sin and the effects of sin, how could you ever really know that God is gracious? How could you ever really know that God is a sustaining presence in our lives through times of trial? You see, sin and suffering, they create a context by which God can more fully be known and completely known and thus more fully and completely glorified. So imagine this with me. What if we never experienced a fallen and broken world and we only knew life in heaven? What if we never saw or experienced hardships or suffering? Our only experience was life in heaven, a perfect utopia. There was no sin, no suffering, no tears of any kind. If that was true, how would we ever know that God was merciful? How do we ever know that God is kind or patient or forgiving or compassionate or loving? I mean, he could tell us that he's forgiving and merciful. But if there's nothing to forgive, because there is no sin, how could we really worship him for his forgiveness? He could tell us that he'd be sufficient for our trials, but if we never face any trials, how could we ever really worship and praise God for his sustaining and gracious presence? These attributes of God, they would just be purely hypothetical to us rather than an experienced reality. And so God has suffering and evil and sin and tragedy in the world for a time so that he can express the full range of his person. His kindness, his patience, his grace, his mercy and love, thus allowing people to experience and know God for all of who he is and then praise God for those things, thus giving him incredible glory. So here's another way to think about it. I love sweet desserts. And one of the desserts that I love to make for myself is this homemade tiramisu. And that is one decadent, rich dessert. The first taste of it, your mouth is overwhelmed by its sweetness, by its goodness. I love it. But you know what happens after a few bites? You lose sensitivity to its flavor. And your mouth gets a bit numb to it. And so do you know what I like with my sweet desserts? Strong brewed coffee. Why? Because coffee is bitter. And as you taste the bitter, what does that do to your ability to taste the sweet? It renews it. And it deepens your appreciation for the sweetness all the more. And in this sense, suffering is like strong brewed coffee. If life was always sweet, we would take the sweetness for granted. And we wouldn't realize how good it really is but throw in some bitter suffering, and now we realize and treasure God's goodness all the more. And no place will this be more true than in heaven itself. You see, our experiencing, uh, experiences of suffering on this earth will be but a blink of an eye in the expanse of eternity, and someday, if you are a Christian, you will look back on this brief, infinitesimally short life, and the memory of its bitterness will help you appreciate the richness of heaven all the more. 
And so a third reason why God has his faithful people suffer, he does it for the sake of his own glory. Because some suffering is necessary for God to fully reveal himself to his people and also because its bitterness heightens our appreciation for all that is good and all that is wonderful, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So here then are three reasons for this vexing question. Why does God have his faithful people suffer? For the sake of his people, particularly to create growth in their character, for the sake of the world, particularly to authenticate and spread the gospel, and for the sake of his glory, particularly to increase worship of himself. So the goal of us as we endure suffering is is to try to have these purposes real in our own life. So that as we suffer, we make sure to ask, God, why, what are you trying to teach me through this? We pray, God, change me, grow me, mature me through this trial. I don't, want, I don't want to be the same on the other side of it. And as you suffer, look for opportunities to show people the hope that you have in Jesus. Strive to encourage the people around you with a confidence and a peace and, a, and, a goodness of, uh, and the goodness of God. Look for opportunities to tell unbelievers that while you suffer, you are not a person without hope. And be sure to articulate that hope to them that they might see Jesus in you and perhaps be saved from eternal suffering themselves. And as you suffer, regularly ask God to glorify himself through your hardship. Ask him to help you be like Job, who in the face of immense suffering did not turn to bitterness or self-pity, but he worshiped. And while that seems to be an impossible task at times, it is not impossible. Because in Christ, all things are possible through him who gives us strength. His grace is sufficient for you, no matter what you face, no matter how you suffer. His promises promises are real. His sustaining grace is real. So we choose to trust him and have faith in the good purposes of God for our suffering. We receive that hardship by faith. And also as we realize that this hardship is but truly a blink of an eye in the expanse of eternity. And that this suffering, this thing that you face, it too will pass. And even if the way through it ultimately is to bring you home to be with him, all suffering will someday end. And God will use that to glorify himself, to mature us, advance the gospel in the world. And ultimately, God will make all things new. And we will live in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no suffering anymore. But our worship in that place will be greatly enriched because of the journey that we took to get there.